Welcome to the Mom and Dot 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 Podcasts. We're your hosts, Suzanne Kearns and Missy Stevens. We want to help you through everything that happens in the ellipses, from your professional life to your emotional health. You're a mom and so much more. Let's figure out what comes next together. Welcome to the Mom and Dot 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 Podcast. It's summer camp for moms week one, featuring who we think may be our most referred to guest, Julie Lifcott-Hames. Yes, at least by me all the time. So if you are (laughs) joining us for the first time, we are currently running a month of replays focused on helping moms discover and develop their passions while their kids are off doing the same thing at their own summer camps this summer. And I am so glad we are replaying Julie's episode about getting unstuck and stopping caring about what other people think and trying to please them and making decisions based on what they think is best for you instead of you knowing what's best for you. Yeah. And this episode is, it's packed. So we tried to write down some of the inspiring things and we almost did like a transcript of the episode. (laughs) So we stopped ourselves. We're not doing that. You're about to listen to the episode. So we just know that it's full of good stuff. So full. So yeah, she, Julie starts by discussing that so much of the reason that we've find ourselves feeling stuck, whether it's in your 30s or in midlife, is because of decisions that we've made to please other people. So this could be the college major that we chose to please our parents or the job you took because you thought it was going to impress other people, but actually completely drained you. You know the ones. Oh, yeah. And she says, today is the beginning of the rest of your life. And that's just, I mean, that's refreshing as we close in on our 50s. But she pointed out that as long as you don't want to maybe do um, neurosurgery or aeronautics, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess you could do those things and be ready to do them when you're 80. But as long as you don't want to do those things, it's really not too late to start right now on whatever it is that lights you up. Yes. Our other big takeaway, you do not have to wait until you're miserable or your body is falling apart to make a change in your life. And you need to give your own self permission to make changes because no one else is going to give you that permission. Nope. And if you suffer from decision inertia, a thing that we may be familiar with, you really need to stick around for the grocery store jam analogy. I think about it all the time. I know. And it is going to change the way you make your choices forever. And the way you grocery shop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> but we don't want to give it all away. So without further ado, here is Julie Lithcott Hanks. Enjoy. Enjoy. Welcome to the Mom and Dot 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 podcast. I'm Missy Stevens. I'm a mom and dot 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 writer, foster care advocate, and this week officially part of my local Master Gardener trainee program. Hey, good job. Congratulations. And I'm Suzanne Kearns. I'm a mom and dot 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 writer, LGBTQ ally, and this week a book proposal duster offer. <laughs> I don't know if that's a real word. <laughs> sure. And today we are so honored to have Julie Lithcott Hames on the show. Julie is a mom and dot 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 writer, speaker, and so much more. She believes in humans and is deeply interested in what gets in our way. She is the New York Times bestselling author of the Anti Helicopter Parenting Manifesto, which I need to just have on repeat <laughs> on a regular basis. Um, how to raise an adult? Got it right here which gave rise to the TED Talk that has more than 5 million views. 
Her second book is the critically acclaimed and award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American, which I also have right here, which illustrates her experience as a Black and biracial person in white spaces. A third book, and the one that we're going to be talking, well, we're going to be talking about everything today, but it's your turn. This is the most recent one, How to Be an Adult is Out. Now, I will learn how to show books on camera one of these days. There we go. (laughs) So Julie is a former corporate lawyer and Stanford dean. She holds a BA from Stanford, a JD from Harvard, and an MFA in writing from California College of the Arts. She serves on the board of Common Sense Media. Oh, my gosh. How many times a week do we refer to that, Missy? I love Almost every time we watch something. Oh, yeah. And on the advisory board of leanin.org. And she's the former board member of the Foundation for College Education, Global Citizen of the Year, the Writer's Grotto, and Challenge Success. Did we say and more and more? Like, (laughs) you fill in your ellipses. Our little tagline is make your ellipses count. After oh, mom and dot, 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 and you, you're yeah, ellipses some ellipses. <laughs> you got, you're making a little Although I need to shorten my bio. I, I, I'm sorry that you've had to read all of that. And, and um, you, you know, know what? I'm, I'm honored usually, to be here. <laughs> we usually trim them, but every single thing on here is like, no, they're all amazing. And I think, yes. I think they're going to all appeal to different listeners in different ways because you do touch so many different spaces. So we just love that. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you, Suzanne and Missy, and to all the listeners who are listening. Uh, thanks for spending some time with me today. Oh, we are so excited thank you. to have you here. So your turn, which I love and I'm giving to everybody I know who's graduating from college, um, it targets that age group in a lot of ways, but it really applies to our audience. So many of our listeners are in their midlife place And maybe they did not set up their lives and the infrastructure of their lives in their 20s like they should have. Maybe they're waking up and kids are going off and they're either in a career that doesn't fulfill them or haven't had a career for a while and are kind of looking for the next thing and asking themselves, who do they want to be when they grow up? So we love where you go with this. And one of the things we want to talk about is stop pleasing others, because I think so many women in this space are trying to please other people when they figure out who they're going to be. Yeah, because that's usually how they got stuck in the place they're at right now. They probably yeah, chose right. a college degree 30 years ago that their parents liked, and now they're stuck. And so... Mm-hmm. So first of all, I love that you called it the midlife place. That <laughs> 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 word was carefully chosen. Midlife place. place. Of course, the norm is the midlife crisis. And it doesn't have to be a crisis. Sometimes it is a crisis. And if it is a crisis, that's okay. But it definitely is a place or a time of life. And I love that. And this book absolutely is for people in the midlife place. Yes, it's pitched at 18 to 34, the youngish adults whom the media says are struggling with adulting. But I've been delighted in the three months this book has been alive, been delighted to hear from people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even saying, I feel like you wrote this book for me. And my response is, I kind of did because adulting is simply the phase of life you're in if you survive childhood and before you did. So if you're alive and you're no longer a child, you're an adult. So it applies to everybody. And I hope this book is just holding up a mirror to the reader so the reader sees themselves in it where Mm -hmm. they to. And so reader A might see themselves here and reader B might see themselves here and reader C might see themselves here. And that's 100% valid and wonderful, in fact. So for women in the midlife place who are feeling stuck, I think what I want to say is it's such a cliche, but to 
day is the beginning of the rest of your life. So whatever has been, has been, you have no control over the past. The future is out there and who knows what's going to happen. Much is out of our control. And if we didn't know that, yes. the pandemic certainly reinforced that. But you get to be here in the now and say, okay, how satisfied am I with the way my life is going? What are the relationships that matter most to me? And do the people in those relationships with me know that they matter to me? How am I doing in my relationships? Is my work meaningful? Is it not? Why is that? What is it that I'd really love to be doing? Do I want to switch careers? Do I want to go back to school? Do I want to level up a skill? Do I want to move? You know, these, these are all very valid and important questions. Life is in some ways at midlife because of advances in, in healthcare, if we're fortunate enough to have access to it. Um, we live a long time now. So midlife is, you know, this wonderful halfway point of reckoning with, all right, maybe I didn't choose my college major because I had to major in X, Y, and Z to please my father, my mother, my whomever. Maybe I chose a career that seemed practical, but always out there. I've had this aspirational thing of I always was good at X. It's not too late to go into X unless it's aeronautics. Like you're not going to just be <laughs> yeah. at 45 and be an astronaut. There are very few careers and professions that require you to have started it when you were 21. Okay. There are a small number of very specialized things that are kind of beyond your reach now if you haven't already done them. But for many of us, that thing we want to do is more creative. It's something we do as a hobby that we really want to lean more into and figure out, can I construct a life and pay my bills and do this hobbyish thing a little bit more professionally or more full-timey somehow? And I'm here to say, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> your one wild and precious life. And here I'm quoting the late poet, Mary Oliver. It's yours. It is yours. It is happening. Go make it what you want it to be. Oh, love that so much. And part of what you did in the book, and this is where Missy and I get stuck. It's literally where we started this podcast because yep. we were in this wishy-washy space in our brain where if someone came up to us and said, what do you want to do? And we've spent the past 15 years as stay-at-home moms, raising our kids based on their schedule, their needs, their everything. And we've gotten to the point where we're like, I don't, I don't even remember. And you literally have just this simple chart that you did when you were deciding to change careers, which is just, what am I good at? And what do I love? And just write it down. Yeah. Yeah. And I love one of the quotes in there is that it's it's simple, but it's not easy. Because it is. I mean, it's simple. Yeah. You can write down. You can get a piece of paper. Anybody can do that. And you can write down your things. But the process of doing that and admitting it to yourself, part of it's exciting. Part of it's kind of depressing because you're like, oh, I've been saying this for 30 years. You know, I should have I should have done this 30 years ago been. when I was thinking about it. But like you said, I mean, today's the first day of the rest of your life. You know, when's the best time to plant a tree? 30 years ago. I bet. Years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very much that same thing. And I really, really also loved, you had one of the stories from uh, someone that you highlighted in the book. We're also overlapping that with where do you find belonging, which is another area that I wanted to talk about with. Mm -hmm. uh, it's overlapping that and the stop pleasing others because you're like a book, Real American a memoir, one of the big things that came out with this idea of self-acceptance and self-love, which is just such an important message around so many things. But we're talking about stop pleasing others and not making college major degrees to please your parents. But there's parts 
of our identity that are not choices, but that we still may not feel are pleasing people or that are putting us in a position where we feel like we can't love ourselves and accept ourselves. I run a group that advocates for LGBTQ students and trying to get inclusive sex ed in our schools. And it's something that we hear a lot as far as it's not even a choice of whether I can please them. Just just me being here in this classroom is not pleasing someone. So I would just really love to hear from your experience and your working with young people. You know, what can we say to people who feel like they're they're not people pleasing just because they exist? And and how do we help them feel feel comfortable in their space and in their lives? So the first thing I want to say is I want to share a little bit of the identities I carry so that um, listeners will know me a little bit more. So I am a black and biracial person who was raised mostly in white spaces. I'm a cisgendered female. I am also in a relationship, a 33-year-long relationship with a cisgendered man. We both identify as bisexual and queer, but I think uh, when it comes to LGBTQ identity, probably the most palatable end of the spectrum for others, even though they might not understand it. Like, how does that work? It's not an identity that has caused me any marginalization. So I think it's the the aspects of my racial background that have caused me to feel really great empathy and connection to anyone who's feel othered or marginalized. And I think what I have learned across 53 years is when we belong to ourselves, we belong everywhere because we take that self mm. with us. So to me, when I say belong to ourselves, I mean, there's a deep self-acceptance, self-love. There is a knowing of the self. I am this. And that can be around identity. It can also be around your circumstance or your situation. I have bipolar, you might say, or, you know, I uh, have social anxiety. Um, I am queer, like whatever it might be. The multiplicity of identities we, we carry, uh, we inhabit. These things are valid. They are part of us. And as we grow to accept that self, then we have that self-compassion. That means we sort of move through the world with a bit of a buffer between us and hate, between us and other would otherize us because the self-love, the self-compassion is this sort of soft thing around us mm. that uh, protects us. And I would offer that, I think, Age and stage in life are how we develop that self-acceptance. It is perfectly natural and normal for a teenager to only care about what other teenagers think and to therefore be a people pleaser and try to conform yeah. to what a norm is at school or in society more broadly. That's natural. That's developmentally appropriate for them. But it can lead to a lot of heartache if they're rejected by their peers. They're so desperately trying to please. And many of us, we get out into the working world um, particularly if we're female identified, for example, we're trying to prove, no, 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 I can, you know, I can be a successful professional woman and have children. And, you know, right, we're, we're in this people pleasing space of trying to meet their expectations. But I have heard so many stories, whether in nonfiction or in fiction, seen so many examples of people who kind of become themselves and accept that self in their 50s, you know, or yeah. They say like, to hell with everybody else. Like, it's not about them. I know who I am. I know what I want. I know where I find and feel joy. I want to be cherished in my relationships. I want to live in a neighborhood where I can walk down the street and feel confident that I belong here, that I'm not going to be viewed suspiciously. For example, I want to choose workplaces where people like me thrive, 
not where I have to hide a piece of my identity or aspect of my background in order to be well-regarded at work. The older we get, the more control we have over all of these things, where to live, where to work, with whom to be in relationship. So I, I do think that it's, it, it, like it or not, I mean, it's hard to say this to a 17-year-old, like it gets better. It's hard to say to somebody that young, like when you're 40, things will be better. But the truth is that we do develop that self-confidence over time. And it is the rare young person who can just say to hell with them. I know who I am. Right. Who I am. Yeah. It I've is heard so Renee Brown talk about the difference between belonging and fitting in. And fitting in is molding yourself to other people's expectations and making yourself fit your neighborhood, your workplace, your relationships. And so when you're talking, I'm thinking so much about developing that sense of belonging is a learned, it's learned behavior that I think, yeah, we don't start at young. And some of us, speaking for myself, work so hard at fitting in for so long that you do maybe wake up in your 40s and think, well, crap. Yeah. Who am I? Who am I actually? Yeah. yeah, I had a therapist ask me that not long ago. I mean, well, it's probably been years ago now, but she she just said, what, you know, who are you? What do you like? And I honestly couldn't answer. Yeah. So that exercise you pointed out in your turn, that's at the end of chapter five, uh, stop pleasing others. They have no idea who you are. That Venn diagram. I knew what other people said I was good at. This was me miserable at age 27, I think, practicing corporate law, which prompted me to do this exercise. I knew what others were pleased about when it came to me. I knew what they valued in me. Mm -hmm. But this was me in a deep dive brainstorm into, Julie, what do you know to be true about yourself? And that was a real challenge. I didn't know. I really had to push and push. And finally, because I was so desperately unhappy, successful, well-paid, and miserable, I think the misery is often what allows us to give ourselves permission to say, wait a minute, you know, what I really want or who I really am or what I really need is this. And I think part of the message of the book is you don't have to wait till you're miserable to claim the life that you want. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to justify it by saying, oh, I was miserable. I think yeah. a lot of people don't reach that point until they say, well, I, I can at least tell people I was unhappy. I was unhappy. My hair was falling out. I had high blood pressure. You know, I, right. We're looking for the physical evidence mm -hmm. that proves that our choice is valid. And we have to get better at saying, no, 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 because I choose it, it's valid. Like I am my own evidence. I want this. Therefore, it matters. And you kind of touched on this in your introduction, but another section of your turn that I just love so much is the, the idea of getting out of neutral. And actually, uh, I was listening to uh, Janice. We had Janice on a, a guest, uh, gosh, a couple months ago from Money, Career, Motherhood yeah. podcast. And this idea of this is your adulthood. Don't wait around for a sign that it is time to start. That is a quote from the book. And I seriously, I came home and I told Missy, I said, I almost had to pull my car over to the side of the road because I was like... <laughs> Yes. I mean, that is it. What are we waiting yeah. for? What, yeah. Whose permission are we waiting for? Again, you know, who are we waiting for to say, yeah, it's okay for you to do that. And I think they're not again, coming. Yeah. A lot of us stay at home moms. We've just spent so many years living for others that neutral kind of feels safer than driving in the wrong direction sometimes. Because who like, what, decides what the wrong direction is? What does that even mean? I know. I know. And that's what this whole podcast is about is us 
interviewing these people. And maybe that's part of it. We're using these coaches to give us permission, Missy. Uh oh, we're doing a self fulfilling prophecy with this podcast of <laughs> trying to get permission to do what we want. You know, can I say something that just came up for me in response to what you just said about the get out of neutral? Because is that okay? I know you have all these questions, but no. Oh, no, go, go, no. go. No, absolutely. I'm going off-road. I'm going off-road. Come with me now. You love it. Okay. Um, I, um, you know, I'm 53. I wrote this book. I'm trying to help people. And I was helped in the writing of this book. That is, I discovered things about me and my journey because I was trying to offer some help to others. And I'm saying this because somebody listening needs to hear this. I was not focusing on my health. I'd had bad experience with doctors, bad. Uh, I, I went in for bronchitis when I was 20 and I was told that I weighed too much. Um, and I had mm. about 30 pounds in college and, you know, so I was about 175 pounds, which I would be delighted to be today. <laughs> and it was how much I weighed. It wasn't about the bronchitis. Mm-hmm. And I learned then that I thought my, my mind went, okay, anytime I have a health issue, I'm going to be judged for my weight. Mm-hmm. That kept me away from doctors for 30 years. Not totally, but only when I had to, as opposed to being able to go see doctors around wellness. And I think it's something I was in neutral around stuck, if you will, which is why this is coming up. In chapter nine, which is take good care of yourself. I talk about the importance of taking care of your mind and your body and da, da, da. And I say, like, I deal with some things. I'm pre-diabetic. I'm, you know, I have asthma. I'm technically obese, according to the body mass index, even though I don't feel obese. You know, like, I'll, I, I put that on the page. And then I'm like, okay, so what do you want to do about this, Julie? You know, here you are telling people, like, your older self will want your younger self to have, you know, paid attention to these things, the things that that will turn out to lead maybe to some chronic health problems. Like I want to live, I want to live, I want to be healthy, I want to be well, therefore I need to go into the doctor and just get my sugar numbers checked. Like I don't want diabetes, but I also don't want to hide from knowing I have diabetes. And so I actually went to the doctor in December and scared. And, you know, I don't have diabetes, thank goodness, but I am pre-diabetic. And I, I turns out I wasn't sleeping well and haven't been, and I've just had a sleep apnea test you like go into the thing and they wire you and you spend the night and it's terrible but (laughs) stop breathing multiple times a night and you can do something about that and so now I have this sleep mask and it's changing my life and I'm like damn it why did I not do this like imagine how brilliant I might have been but wait a minute I'm I'm proud of myself for what I have achieved but like it's hard it's hard when mm-hmm. you're deprived of oxygen. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. you know, my getting oxygen. And I'm like, okay, thank goodness. I did not wait a day longer. And I think that's the message. You will never be younger than you are right now. Again, okay? A year from now, you're going to look back on today and say, why didn't I, right? So I'm yeah. trying to offer from what I've learned the hard way. If you are not already caretaking the self around your mental health, around your physical health, your body, you know, whatever it may be, I'm not judging anybody for anything. You know, as I say this, what is coming up for you, if anything is so like, that is the most important thing. You know, you want to be as well as you can be mm-hmm. so that this life, whatever the work is, whatever the relationships are. So you're bringing, you know, the healthiest you to all of it. Yeah. Yeah. My stomach is doing its flip thing every episode. I'm like, oh, my stomach just flipped. <laughs> because you're <laughs> that, that was. 
yeah, just I hear something that just speaks right to me. That yeah. is, that's the heart of it. And mm-hmm. it's not for me, it's not my health right now, but there's, it, I've been there before. I have avoided going to the doctor because I knew I gained weight and I knew the first thing they were going to say was, well, let's look at your weight. And that stupid BMI, don't even get me started on no. that. But, uh, you're don't talking to the girl who had a burst appendix for four days. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. But if it's not the doctor, it's something that we are stalled out on mm-hmm. because of external messages. And But I think in kind of what we're talking about, and I, I agree that there's not a right direction, but I think so many of us have this binary right or wrong direction. Mm. And I got to admit that I am stuck there. And I loved uh, part of the Your Turn book was this idea of stop saying, keeping your options open. And I know that was a, meant to be around like when a kid doesn't choose the major that you want, be like, oh, well, keep your options open. You know, art sounds nice, but what about that pre-med? But this idea that too many options, like I can't go to the grocery store. Grocery stores are the number one trigger of my anxiety disorder because there's so many choices. Yep. And I love this idea that, you know, the, it said in the book, you know, there, if you had three jams that you were tasting, you'd go home with one. If you have 20, you just are like, no, no, no more too jams, many jams, too many jams. <laughs> and I, I feel like life is so full of too many, too many jams. And there are so many interests that I have that I would like to explore. So I think that's where I get the idea of what if I choose the wrong direction? Yeah. Like I, I really love the LGBTQ advocacy, but I also, because of we're doing the inclusive sex ed, I've really got into the importance of comprehensive sex ed. But I also want to do this helping other stay-at-home moms find their direction. So there's there's yeah. a lot of things that are interesting. And I feel like, well, what if I choose the wrong one? Uh, that's to say you can't then go choose something else. I know. I, I know. But right. I think that's that's where my neutral is. My neutral is because I, I feel like neutral, at least I'm here. If I drive in the wrong here. direction, that I'm going to come back picked, here. I have not picked the wrong one. <laughs> You're neutral. I'm good because I have not picked the wrong yep, one. I haven't picked anything. So I'm going to interrogate wrong one because life is not linear. There isn't a right track. There are some wrong tracks like becoming a serial killer or a drug dealer, right? You don't You don't want to go down those paths. Yeah. But you know, the vast realm of humanity and options and work and relationship and so on are good. And you can't possibly choose them all. You know, it would have been impossible to be an astronaut and a brain surgeon and a concert pianist. You know, for example, you might have aptitude for all three of those, but all three would have required all of your focus and attention in order to get good at it. So you had to say like, all right, I might love all three. I need to pick one. And I'm going to pick one. And based on what I know to be true about myself, not what other people say you should do, right? Get that inner voice activated. Listen to it. What I really want, what brings me joy, the places I thrive, the work that, you know, makes me feel in flow, right? And pick one and know that it is impossible to pick everything. You pick one based on you. That's what's different about you versus the jam. At the supermarket, 20 jams, you're like, I don't know. This one has boysenberry. This one has raspberry. I don't know. This one has this. Like, we're not talking about jam. We're talking about what do you know about yourself? The answers are in you about not which one is is the best. You can't necessarily rank them, but you can sort of organize your thoughts around the upsides and the downsides of this, the upsides and the downsides of this, the upsides and downsides of this. Okay. In light of all that, given where I am in my life right now, which feels best? And it's good to have three. 
when we taught, I, I got to be part of the teaching team for Designing Your Life at, at Stanford, which was offered to seniors taught by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. They went on to write a hugely popular book, Designing Your Life. One of the things we did with our students was put together an odyssey plan, which is, okay, you're 21, 22. You're looking out at your 20s. What are your three options for what you might do? And one of the options was sort of the, oh my gosh, if it was just up to me and nothing else mattered, like my dream thing, you know, put that down and put down the thing that feels practical and safe and like, you know, and then there, what's the middle one? There are elements in ETH, they're all this exercise is teaching you something about what matters to you and what doesn't, you know, the values you have, the things you, you know, you want your life to incorporate and you ultimately get to, to pick and it's exciting. I could have done any number of things that I haven't done, but I'm very excited about the path my life has taken. Yeah. Well, we're so glad that you are doing this. And I think part of that is yeah. identifying your superpowers. Yes. And that so was that my is, next question. Yes. I'm going to let you leave. I'm, I'm just talking. To, I, I seriously just want to lock you in a room for a week and just talk to you because I get so inspired. Be <laughs> thank, good, thank goodness for all of these books because. And I'm sure Julie's really happy is. that we have a country between us now that she's well, you're a crazy stalker lady. <laughs> I promise. I will actually lock you in a room. Yeah. And a lot of what you were saying really reminds me of in order to do this, you have to unleash your superpowers and know what your superpowers are. So we wonder if you could tell us just personally a little bit about your mindfulness and gratitude practices that help get you to that place. Yeah, yeah. So this is the end of the book, the this penultimate chapter, unleash your superpowers, mindfulness, kindness, and gratitude. And I think of these things as capabilities that exist in our human self in our being that are there latent waiting to be cultivated and, and strengthened and utilized and strengthened further in the utilization. That is, we all have a capacity to be kind and to be grateful and to develop mindfulness, but they don't just happen. Um, I had an amazing executive coach at Stanford, Mary Ellen Myers, who really changed my life. I was getting feedback about uh, how my colleagues perceive me in the workplace, you know, this very sort of type A person with a lot of emotion and a lot of feelings and, and personality that was too much for people. And, um, <laughs> put it nicely. And, uh, anyway, she, you know, we were working together and how could I be as effective as I wanted to be? How could I have the impact I wanted to have? And she taught me mindfulness, um, or her, brand of mindfulness, which is effectively scan your body when you're about to have a, when you're having a feeling that makes you want to punch somebody. I never actually punch anybody, but sometimes <laughs> verbally I was punching people. When you're having a feeling that makes you want to, oh, see if you can analyze what's going on, what's going on, what was that? What just happened? What did you hear? What did they say? What did you see? What did you read? Like what, you've just been triggered. What was that? And then we, over time, we're able to delve into, well, why are those triggers there? What is it that makes you likely to respond to that thing that was said? And then, you know, what do you want to ultimately do about it? You want to choose, am I responding? Yes or no. If I'm responding, is it now or later? If I'm responding now, is it going to be a statement? Am I going to fold my arms? Am I going to get up? Like what just slows down the, it, it stalls the impulse to react and respond and just run. And then I have to apologize because I overreacted and we've lost sight of this thing, which I did find problematic and was reacting to, but now my reaction has become the problem. So if I can have a little bit more control over my reactions through a mindfulness process, then I'm not the problem. The thing is the problem and we can 
talk about it and I can contribute in ways that I want to and be heard. So mindfulness is now running in my background, like uh, almost like a Google browser. Like I could just type in, what am I feeling? Oh, okay. I'm feeling that. And I could be talking to you and this is running in my background and forming me like, okay, you're frightened right now. Yep. Okay. And I love myself through it. You're all right. You're all right. Yep. You're frightened. Are you real? Is there a cyber tooth tiger? No, it's not a real threat. You're fine. But yeah, it's valid. Okay. Love myself through the reactions that I'm having and decide how to respond. That's my mindfulness practice. And it has changed my life without question for the positive. Yeah. I love that idea of the Google Drive. I, I, I <laughs> like the imagery of it. That will help me stop and remember a little bit. Like, let's search on this for a minute. Yeah, like, let's what's see. for me right now, right? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. It's, it's an inquiry into the self. What are we, what is that? Oh, mm-hmm. yes. And the gratitude, I've been telling Missy, and we mentioned it, well, that hasn't aired yet, the episode we recorded last week. The universe has been thumping me on the head with needing to yeah. do a gratitude practice. I mean, it's coming up every day and just all these random places. So I'm really curious. I've been asking a lot of people what their gratitude practice looks like. Well, I'm the sort of person that tends to like have a practice for a while and then I do something different. And whether it's my Peloton or my gratitude practice or, you know, how how I get the magazines I want to read read as opposed to stacking up on a pile on my desk. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I don't have a gratitude practice that I always do, but I have a lot of different things that I incorporate all the time. So in late spring, my 20, now 22-year-old son has been home with us during the pandemic and I was teaching him the importance of a gratitude practice. So I said, hey, how about every night before dad and I turn in, you and I sit down for five minutes and just reflect back on the day and notice something that we're grateful for. And I also suggested we notice acts of kindness. So can you point out yeah. one kind thing you did? And if you can't think of a kind thing you did, was there a kind thing you saw someone else do? And, and then gratitude, recognizing that you're grateful for the tiniest things in your daily life. And so he and I did that for about five weeks straight, every single night. Wow. And um, I knew the research that said when you develop a gratitude practice, Um, you start to notice on your own the things you have for which you can be grateful outside of the practice. And you start to draw those things, that appreciation of things, you know, into your mind, into your being. You start to feel that what you have is enough. You know, you get out of the space of, I need this, and if only that, and I wish, you know, it's not that those things are not valid, but you're starting to notice the things that are closer at hand yeah. And that you are grateful for. So it's it's just such a beautiful thing. It doesn't cost any money. It doesn't require no. higher degree of education. It's just available to us if we can if we can notice and see and dare to articulate. Um, some of us, I think, feel vulnerable or feel that it's a sign of weakness to show gratitude. And mm-hmm. and I know it's the opposite. It's uh, it's a tremendous strength, and it makes us even stronger. I'm curious with a 22-year-old, I have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. And when I try to do things like that with them, it's met with a decent amount of resistance. Like they have played along with things before. uh, But I'm curious if at 22, was that met with any resistance or, you know, I guess I'm asking, do I have to look forward to my children becoming a little bit more receptive to my ideas? It gets better, Missy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, definitely. My 22-year-old. Um, but he's always been a bit of an 
old soul or or willing to kind of go to those places. So mm-hmm. probably not the best comparison, but um, it definitely does get better. And I think if you're not trying to spoon feed it, if you just sort of say at the dining table, hey, you know, I today I've been thinking about my gratitude practice and what it means and I'm trying to get better at it. And, you know, sharing about what's going on in your life without saying like, we're going to develop a family gratitude practice. I mean, you could do that too, but it sounds Doesn't like work here. your teens might not like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I've just really come model. to doing. Just rough just, model it. That's what I've come to do is just make sure they know what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Can you guys help me with it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, we are so grateful that you agreed to come on the show and spend this time with us. And before we jump into the look, listen, learns, I know we've been spending a lot of time. Again, your turn is the new book. (laughs) Seriously, (laughs) there we go. How to be an adult. (laughs) Your turn. Oh, my goodness. Uh, But I don't want to. There, I know she's a pro. She can look there. But I don't want to let you go without talking about how to raise an adult such a good such because we are both parents of i've got a 16 and an almost 12 year old and i caught myself recently as my daughter's going into her junior year like uh we're researching the topic of these coaches i guess like college coaches that help kids Mm -hmm. you know with their letters with their deciding which college they want to go to what their major wants to be and all this stuff and literally the prices are about the same as Well, I went to the University of Idaho in the 90s, so it was a little cheaper, but it's expensive. And I don't want to say, oh, my kids aren't worth it. But first of all, I think there's a real privilege in even having the option to have that financial choice to do Mm -hmm. that. But then the other part of me is like, this is, I don't know. I don't know. We're we're so pro-coach in the idea of coaching and, and getting a better understanding of yourself. But I also, I want to make sure my kids have ownership of this process and having them know that, hey, there is such a thing as a coach if you're having problems deciding this, but, you know, what are some things that I can give you to support you along the way as you figure this out? Like, so that, I mean, I'm using this both to read and also to kind of hit myself in the head every once in a while to be like, okay, no, you're taking over too much. I want to make sure my kids know what they don't know as far as options that are available, but I don't want to be the one who's just like here and you could do this and you could do this and you could do this yeah. and you could do this. Um, so I I love that this book exists, that it is helping me be aware of when I am doing that. But I think a lot of our listeners, because we are a midlife, a lot of kids the same age would love your, in a yeah. nutshell of how to raise an adult when it comes to college admission stages. So let me say I was not in college admission. I just want to be clear on that. I was the dean of freshmen, which meant I worked with students once they came to campus, but I had not. Gotcha. A common mistake. I really don't want any responsibility for admission. So it's important for me to clarify that. But <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's will say. Coaches are the norm in many communities, affluent communities where people can afford that, that price tag. As you've said, um, coaches in general in life can be quite valuable. The question is, do I need a coach? If so, for what? Um, so I am all for, if you can afford it, I think it is nice to have another human who is talking with your kid around the deadlines associated with applying to college, around the breadth of options. Talk about 20 jam jars, right? There are <laughs> yes. fantastic schools in America. And how do you get past the U.S. News Top 20, which is a just BS list? 
and really start to mm-hmm. dive into what makes a college great. And somebody who does this for a living is going to have far more information than the average parent. So I think that's a valid reason to have a coach. I think if you're like, I don't want my parent-child dynamic to be all about, have you taken a test? Have you signed up? Have you done, right? If your tendency is going to be to micromanage them and you can afford to hire a coach who is going to not micromanage them, but be a whole, hopefully a trusted adult who sits with them and takes an interest in them and just helps them navigate a pretty complicated process. It is more complicated now than it was back in the day when you got a brochure from the University of Idaho and you found out the deadlines and you applied, right? It's definitely more complicated. There are endless links and endless things and and there's a lot. So having somebody help your child manage the process is valid. And often the parent Mm -hmm. can really not support that process going well. So if you, you know, there's, there are valid reasons to, to seek out the help of a third party. But I am 100% against the places that say we guarantee your kid will get into these types of places or packaging your kid to look a certain way, places that are kind of writing the kid's essay for them. That's unethical. It also tells the kid, even worse than the ethics problem, it tells the kid, oh, you can't do this yourself. So we're going to have somebody kind of package you to look better than you would be on your own. I mean, it's terrible for their developing mind. my heart, yes. Right. And I would also say a kid who lacks the motivation or skill to go through the process in the driver's seat, probably not ready to go to college yet. Probably a great candidate for a gap year, great candidate for the workplace for a couple of years, great candidate for community college, right? If you have to do everything to get them to college application is the deadline has been met. Um, that's a sign. And you should pay attention to it. College will always great advice. Next fall, it'll be there the fall after. A kid should go when they are motivated to engage the process. What am I excited about? What feels like the right place to support my developing interests in X, Y, and Z? Maybe I have no idea what I'm interested in. That's fine. Let me go to a place where you don't have to declare until the end of your sophomore year. That's valid, you know, but if they're just sort of going because they're on a treadmill, it's like, well, I graduated high school. I guess I better go to college. Like they're on a moving mm-hmm. walkway. That is too expensive a proposition for somebody to just be sort of passively gliding toward. Oh, and that's so much a big point of how to raise an adult is just tips and reminders and how to make sure that your kid, you, not just that your kid is an active participant in their own life, but that you are giving them the space to do that. Because yeah. naturally, I think they probably would on their own. I think it's when we get in their way and start making it too easy that they're like, well, okay, <laughs> if you're going to go ahead and do this for me, yeah. go for it, lady. Yeah. And when we set up that dynamic early in childhood, then they really don't know how to self-start or how to persist on a task or mm-hmm. how to organize a big project because we've always been there as the handler. And then we shouldn't be surprised that they can't. And then when we discover we have raised our kids that way, we have to work hard at repatterning, I call it, which is what I'm doing with my kids. I recognize I was overparenting them. Look, I wrote this book and I appreciate that you're extolling its virtues. Um, I'm proud of this book. And I learned in the course of writing it and in touring it. I mean, this has been out for six years. So my own kids have gone from 16 and 14 to 22 and 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I've been the author of this thing, I have learned more about my overparenting tendencies as I have been with audiences around this book, I tell stories on myself when I travel to Texas, when I travel to the East Coast or the Northwest or wherever I go, I tell stories about my own overparenting to help parents feel I'm not judging you, but I am saying it's wrong. And I know why it's wrong. I've seen it in other people's kids and 
you know, I've done it. Yeah, with you've my seen it in action. Help. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I think that, you know, at coming out of COVID and kids are going back to school and stuff, I think even if you've read it before, it's probably a good idea to read it again. We're different parents and they're different kids than we were 16 months yeah. ago. We've kind of gotten into some routines and habits that probably are a little too, not too close, but I mean, literally we have been all just been right together. And so the level of involvement just by nature of proximity is going to be a lot more than probably it would have been if they had been out in the world and especially for college students who are doing, you know, their first year of college at home. So encourage people. um, Your turn is perfect for the kids who are, like you said, 18 to 34, but it also us middle life moms. I mean, everybody read it, share it, share it across the family. Um, but when I, I don't think your kids can be too young to start reading how to raise an adult. I mean, right. give this as a baby present right. because it really is. It's it's something that you've got to get in motion. They're just going down that first slide ride at the park. Um, <laughs> I mean, it really is. Yeah. It's like my overparenting started. I was like, for real, mine too. <laughs> I love saying, I don't know. I mean, my kid looks, I tell, I detail this in how to raise an adult, which is why I think you're yep. really, right. I, my son looked at me like, and I was like, oh no, he's so afraid. Now I'm able to see, I was staring at him like, you might die on this slide. Let's <laughs> prevent your death. Come on, show them optimism. Show like be, you get enthusiastic. Like this is going to be great. So like, I mean, both of my husband was on one side and I was on the other. And we were like, and this was a kitty slide like the <laughs> right. like a slide Not like this yeah oh my God. i have a really close friend who is a college professor and always has a freshman group of kids it's a fairly small university and so he always leads a group of freshmen and yeah. every year without fail he has at least one parent but usually many parents call him and they call him and they say my child really struggles if they don't like their professor or my child really needs help with X, Y, Z. And it's always these things that absolutely a college student should be doing for themselves. And he said, it's getting more and more every year. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. That's why I wrote this. That's why that's what I was seeing at Stanford. And what, you know, I left Stanford in 2012 and now here we are 2021. So I am nine years post having my own personal experiences with the Yeah. It's just gotten, it was alarming enough. Look, I began writing about this in 05, back there on my uh, bookshelf is a framed article, an op-ed that I wrote for the Chicago Tribune in 2005 on the harm of overparenting. This book came out 10 years later, 2015. And it's just, it's gotten worse in some, but then of course, plenty of people have been like, okay, I get it. I can see the outcome that it's problematic. We get frustrated with our kids. Like, why can't you tie your shoes? Because you've never let me. <laughs> Shirley's screaming, we got to get out the door. I'll tie him for you. <laughs> One of the guys that I profiled, I do have 31 humans profiled in your turn from all different walks of life, diverse group in every manner of speaking. One of them, a guy from Texas, from Dallas, is estranged from his dad. And he's now in his young 30s. And he says, you know, as his dad's yelling at him um, about money, a very wealthy family. He says, the kid, the young man, Joe, says, you carried me my entire life and now you're mad that I can't stand on my own? Mm -hmm. And he he carried me. He's using the metaphor. You know, not you financially carried me, but you carried me. You held me here on your shoulder or your hip my entire life. 
And now you're mad that you've set me down that I don't know how to walk. Right? Yeah. It's so clear. We have to let our kids, we have to put them down on the sidewalk and let them learn to walk. And as a metaphor for every skill, every competency we expect that they will have in their adulthood. Yeah. Getting them out of neutral too. And getting right. ourselves out of neutral and not letting our kids get stalled in neutral because of right. something that we did. So, oh, okay. We are right here at the end. We yes, like to wrap so up with our look, listen, learn segment. But before we do that, I want to make sure people know how best to find you for speaking mm -hmm. engagements. And then also, I mean, you can find your books anywhere, but I know we love to support our local booksellers. Go so take a look. Book people in Austin. Yeah, but people. people, yep. I've been there. I've been there. Yeah, I've been, I came with Rick Wearful, actually. Sure. Yeah, there we go. Go to book people, y'all. Buy my books. That would be great. You can follow me on social at jlithcott-haynes. That's my first initial, last name without the hyphen. I'm everywhere, even about to do some TikTok videos. So stay Oh, gosh. Too. We're about try to try it, too. too. Good for you. I have 20 followers on TikTok right now. <laughs> Maybe after this podcast, I'll have like 30 other. <laughs> So, um, so I'm Jay Lifcott-Hames, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Clubhouse. I'm Jay Lifcott-Hames. And um, my website, julielifcott-hames.com, no hyphen, is where you can see some detail on my books and see where I'll be speaking next and the link to ask me to speak and all of that. So please do uh, check me out. If you've liked what you've heard, please follow me. I'd love to engage with you around these topics more. Wonderful. I cannot have in the books enough. Oh my gosh. They, yeah. Every, all of them are excellent. And it's clear. See, and Suzanne, I appreciate it. You're big advocates. I wouldn't even be trapped in a room with you. <laughs> be careful what you say. <laughs> and I love Austin. I'm happy to come to Austin. And be oh, come, come, come. Well, you know, the, we, I mean, we've been following you for years and years because we know Jess and KJ Jess from The Gift of Failure. And so we just know, I mean, she's been such a big fan of obviously your work and your similar interests and in following yep. this topic. And, and, that, and that first book coming out, our books are so, um, they, they really complement each other. And yeah. I love her work and I just love watching what she's doing. She has an amazing new book out now for how to help parents. The addiction inoculation. Uh, home environment that prevents kids from getting addicted it's so good yeah i think if that has been you know speaking of look listen learns we'll go into that segment but i think that the addiction inoculation has been like three of our guests uh yeah a bit thing that they've been reading yeah so we're big fans of that and then oh yeah we love them um so yeah the look listen learn segment is just so you know we've been talking a lot about your professional expertise but just so people can get a little bit of insight into the things that you like to read listen to learn about um, so would love to hear what you've been look, listen, learning recently. Um, so I'm asked to blurb other people's books. People will send me their early version and ask me to blurb it. So I often am not reading for pleasure. I'm reading to support. I mean, it hopefully it is pleasure, but I'm doing it <laughs> as a professional courtesy because that's what authors do for each other. Um, so I've made it a point to try to read more for pleasure to try to carve out enough room. And I finished Hamnet probably three months ago. You know, yes which is this historical fiction about William Shakespeare's the young son who died in real life um, at age 11 from the plague back in the 1500s. And this is a historical fictional take on that child's life, which is so well told. I feel like it's a, it's like a, a theater script plus the director right there telling you how to interpret 
the various pieces of information. It's so beautifully written, captivating. I don't typically like historical fiction because I get frustrated. I'm, I'm much more of a nonfiction and, and a memoir person because I love trying to tell the truth of the human experience as much as we can bear. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm Maggie O'Farrell. Really highly recommend it. Um, it's on my bedside table right now. Oh, good. I'm staring at an art installation. I wish I could sort of turn my laptop around elegantly, but I might unplug myself. Uh, but basically, my friend Jasmine Quill is an amazing artist, and she has a series of uh, nomadic people. Um, it's tiny little scraps of paper that she's formulated into the shape of humans walking in a procession. So it speaks migration. It speaks to refugees. It speaks to, you know, the, just the forward momentum of human life. And so it's a triptych, three pieces that just span my, my office here. Um, and I'm so grateful to her. And this is a continuation of an installation that she has put up in places around the world. And each piece, the last one she did, she'll take a, she'll make sure she has a piece from that one to start the next one. It's oh, I love on. that. Procession is That's so cool. An amazing artist and I'm delighted to have her work here to inspire me as I do my work. And then finally, my husband, son and I, sometimes we we watch things together, television. Sometimes it's just me and Dan, my, my husband. Sometimes it's just me and Sawyer, my son. Sometimes it's the two of them. Um, when it's me and Dan, we really love This Is Us. And the reason I love it is I think through the story of Randall, they do such mm beautiful job of telling the complexity of being black in a white family or being black in mostly white spaces. Now, Randall is so, and Sterling K. Brown, who plays Randall, is so much darker than me. I'm this very, very light-skinned black person. And I know that that means I have a ton of privilege compared to my darker brothers and sisters. And yet I've been called the N-word. I've been you know, the recipient of microaggressions and things. And I just think the writers in This Is Us have a huge heart for what it feels like to be the other, to be not known by your own family because they can't possibly know what it's like to walk in your footsteps and the loneliness. Talk about nothing. Yeah. So I just think they they've done a terrific job with that, with that script, with those, with those storylines. And of course they tell it in these wild arcs across decades of life and they have all these different actors playing the same character at different times of life they just the way they go about telling the tales is also very groundbreaking but i think they're just hitting race out of the park agree and so oh and along those lines i again want to do a shout out for real american and the idea of making sure that us, us white ladies are doing the work of learning some stories and reading the stories and, and having more of an understanding of what that is like to be in a space and feel otherness. I don't think that um, a lot of us experience that, um, mm -hmm. especially in years when we can't travel as much into geographies or locations that might make us feel other or being brave to do that. I know we have you at the end of your time. I've, Missy and I can do our look, listen, learn separately. Or if you want to stay for a couple minutes, we're happy to have I'd you for that. Stay. I'd love to hear your look, listen, learn. All right. So, so okay. Listen to Suzanne. What am I listening to? Okay. Yeah. So that my listening and my learning and my looking all kind of are related. We started uh, with talk about coaching. We started with a dog coach last week. Because I have two of the worst behaved dogs in the history of dogs. And, you know, I, what I needed was instead of how to raise an adult, I needed how to raise a dog. Because I... I'm sure I, there's a book. 
I did not set them up for success. Let's just say that. So I'm coaching myself too. So are the coach suggested switching our home music over to classical music, which I, I mean, I don't not like classical music. I just, I guess I just never really thought about it. It's not really your home soundtrack usually. No, the only time I ever really listen to it is when they tell you to play it on your stomach when you're pregnant. (laughs) Like so, (laughs) but I'm like, okay, so, but, so we've been listening to classical music and I am really surprised how calming it has been for me. I'm I'm the one who's usually sitting around in the house and in that space where the music plays. So I've really enjoyed that. Um, And then, you know, what I've been learning is all the coaching stuff and we've been practicing some recall stuff with them. But it's it's very interesting because we talk a lot about habits on the podcast and this idea of it not being a binary good or a bad habit. It's just the replacing a behavior that's not serving you with one that gets you closer to where you want to be. And that's exactly how the dog coaching is going too, where it's very much like, you know, Barking is not necessarily bad is the way that they are barking. You know, okay, it it serves a purpose. It gets your attention. But is that we need to replace barking for five minutes with barking once and then moving on to another behavior. Um, so it's just really interesting to think of the, the dog mind and our mind as far as how we replace these habits or behaviors with one that gets us, gets us to where we want in life, which is me not yelling at them all the time to be quiet. Um, and then look, getting your arm pulled off when you go down the street, but they're doing better. I've, I, those dogs are going to be 400 pounds by the time we're done with this. Cause they just get treated. They get treated for everything. <laughs> it's a very motivational thing. But so we have to all about plan their meal. We have, yeah, we have to plan their meals based on how much treating we're right. going to be doing. Um, but one of them is a tiny, I mean, if I'm going to give her treats, it's going to fill up her little tummy. So yeah, they are, they're loving life this week. Um, but again, with the idea of the stimulus and the music and stuff, she also recommended that we limit the stimulus visually and putting up some window films on the the triggering areas where they would look for the mailman or they would look for the squirrel or they would look for, and not forever. I mean, it's not to just, you know, okay, we're just going to put you in this little bubble where you can't have any input. But this idea of while you're working on switching behaviors or creating some new behaviors, don't have all this other stuff overwhelming you list so they can really focus on that one thing. So um, eventually we'll be working on, let's pull down this peel and let's look at the mailman while we work on some of these training things. But I mean, it's only been one week and literally if all that comes out of it is this window film, cause it's, it has made the peace level in the house so much better because they don't feel like they're hunting all the time. And that's gotta be stressful for them to feel like they're guarding the house and they're guarding everything else they can see from the house. And now they're just like, oh, cool. I just have to guard the TV room. (laughs) I don't have to do all this other space. So it's just been, it's been a very learning experience for me and hopefully kind of the dogs too. So we'll see. Knock on wood and I'll report back. It reminds me of child development when they say like, when your child, you see it really when they're little, but it goes all the way and maybe adults do this too. But when they're learning something new, everything else just sends them into orbit. So they're really focused on this one skill and you may not see it yet, but after a week of tantrums, they might have several new words or after nightmare bedtimes for a month, not only are they suddenly sleeping better, but also they can tie their shoes or whatever it is. So it's kind of like your dogs need all that out. They're losing their minds because there was too much going on. So now they're learning just this one thing. 
I hadn't even put it together, but we just started driver's training for Zoe. So yesterday, no, the day before yesterday was the first day. Like we're just driving around in circles in a parking lot. I mean, the radio was off, right? We're not, we're not blasting Billie Eilish while she's trying to learn how to drive. I love (laughs) Billie Eilish, but that's not the time and place for it when she's trying to concentrate on driving. So that's what we're doing for the dogs. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Okay. What do you look, listen, learn in this week, Missy? So this week, I went back to a podcast that I haven't listened to in the longest time. I have so many podcasts on my list and they're just, I can't keep up with all of them. But this one is called The Guilty Feminist with Deborah Francis White. And I used to listen to it all the time. And one day this last week, I thought, I really missed that. I don't know what even triggered it and reminded me of it. So I went back and I've been catching up on a few episodes. But every episode starts with a, I'm a feminist, but... And it'll be a story about something just really ridiculous that makes them question all their high ideals. And um, on her website, one of the stories is I'm a feminist, but once I was at a women's march and I went into a store to go to the bathroom and got distracted playing with face creams. And when I came out, the march was gone. (laughs) So (laughs) she's a feminist, but um, she always has like a rotating guest host and um, it's comedy. But they discuss really serious stuff and or Britney Spears this week. It's oh. Britney Spears. Oh, Brit- uh, free Britney. So I love the Guilty Feminist. And it's their length of that podcast, though, makes ours look so short. They're well over an hour every time. So, Oh, that makes good. me feel better because, yeah, yeah, we, as you can tell, Julie, we have a very hard time keeping things under an hour. So. <laughs> it's never going to be. Well, I was going to add for my, I love listening to your look, listen and learn. And, and there was one other piece I was going to mention in mine, I forgot, but the, this long form podcast by Rich Roll can be close to two hours sometimes. And uh, it's called the Rich Roll podcast. He's a Rich Roll. Ultra okay. runner, a vegan, plant-based guy who came out of substance abuse uh, mm-hmm. years ago and has had this incredibly inspiring, healthy life since and has this amazing conversational podcast that is very long form. So I think there's a place for an hour-long podcast. There's a place for the 25-minute podcast. And there's a place for the two-hour because everybody's consuming audio in different places, you know? So the beauty of it is you can push pause and finish it later if it's too long. That's our theory. Our audience are a bunch of smart, grown women. They they know how to press pause if they need to for an appointment. So (laughs) let's thank them for those who have stayed with us and are now listening. Like, thank you for listening to us ending your day with us or your night or whenever it happened to be that you're listening. I'm grateful that you decided to give this episode a spin and that you stayed with it. I hope you got something useful out of it. Oh, well, we are so grateful for you and taking time out of your schedule. And you know what? I got to tell you, when we sent an invitation for you to come, it was one of those pie in the sky, you know, just for like, oh, you know, the worst that can happen is they say no. And when you said yes, we were just so grateful and we've been so excited and looking forward to this. I'm trying to help people. I'm trying to help people so that when you reach out like, hey, I like your book. I really resonate. We have a podcast. I'm going to be like, yes. Uh, It's a great way for me to um, get word out about what I'm up to. And if people are resonating, I mean, that's the thing, right? Some people listen right now have heard something they needed to hear, hopefully feeling more seen, less alone, more supported. And uh, that's what I'm here for. So I was delighted to get the ask and delighted to spend this hour plus with you. Uh, well, thank, thank you. you. Thank so you so much. much. And I definitely did get the inspiration I needed. And you know what? When I talked about how this week that I am a, a book proposal duster offer, it was because of 
you know, refreshing and going, uh, rereading uh, these books that really got me to that space. So thank you. Thank you. Thank I'm you. I'm about to try to finish a book proposal myself. So I'm inspired by the fact that you've got some years off. Uh. Oh, well, mine's about three years old. So it's going to have a lot of dust. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. And book is a mother-daughter memoir co-written with my 82-year-old mother. Oh, wonderful. So we're... Well, I want to read it. So definitely get that. Yeah, get on that. Get on that because we want to read it. <laughs> good, good. All right, y'all. Take care. Be well. Thank you so much. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us for the Mom and Dot 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 podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you know someone else who could benefit from the episode, please be sure and share it with them. And while we're begging please subscribe and rate us wherever it is you listen to podcasts. You can find links to all the things we discussed today in our show notes or over at our website, momandpodcast.com with the A-N-D spelled out. In between shows, find us over at the socials, including our private mom and community Facebook group. The links to that group and all of our socials can be found at momandpodcast.com. Thank you so much for your support. We appreciate you more than you know. Now go out there and make your ellipses count.